Many of you are probably already aware that my career in marketing really began as a food photographer, which is why today's conversation uh, is such a real pleasure for me to be able to sit down with one of the most sought-after food photographers in the country, a guy named Andrew Scrivani. If you've opened up the New York Times in the last 10 or 15 years uh, to the, the dining section or the cooking section, you have undoubtedly seen some of Andrew's photos. He's an incredibly accomplished uh, artist as well as an educator. He's really an educator at heart, and so being able able to communicate uh, what he does and how he accomplishes it, I think is so, so valuable. I wanted to have him on the show today uh, to talk about how to capture your own photos and how to, if you're an operator, if you're a chef and you want to work with a professional, how the best way to do that. How do you work with a professional? There's tons of knowledge, tons of value on this episode. It's a really great conversation. Please don't go anywhere. There's an old saying goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly podcast all about helping chefs and operators build more profitable restaurants. Each week we toggle back and forth between a monologue style format and an interview. But the goal is always the same, right? To, to take complicated concepts and make them both understandable and actionable. Why? Because like I always say, information is only as valuable as the action it inspires. Now, this week's episode is sponsored by Seven Rooms, a guest experience and retention platform for the hospitality industry. From neighborhood restaurants and bars to international multi-concept hospitality groups, their data-driven platform empowers operators to build more profitable direct relationships, deliver exceptional experiences, and increase repeat visits and orders. With a full suite of products, including reservation, waitlist and table management, online ordering, review aggregation, and marketing automation, Seven Rooms is the perfect choice for helping you gain a 360-degree view of your guests both on and off-premise. Book a demo with Seven Rooms today and receive an Amazon gift card for $50 simply by booking the demo. To get started, email hello at try7rooms.com with restaurant strategy in the subject line. Of course, all that information is in the show notes. So my guest on today's show is Andrew Scrivani. He is a food photographer, a uh, an educator, and now an author. I'm really uh, lucky to be joined by him. Andrew, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This is Restaurant Strategy. Obviously, it's a, it's a podcast uh, directed towards chefs, operators, uh, marketers, managers, people working in the restaurant industry. You have spent uh, the better part of your career working very closely with the food industry. Um, and especially when we talk about um, food photography, um, I think it's kind of a prerequisite. It's the, the foundation for how we promote our restaurants. And so I wanted to have a conversation, uh, if we can, in two different directions over the course of the day. Um, number one, I want to help uh, guide people um, to capturing great photography of their own uh, that maybe they're not a professional, but they can't afford a professional. And so uh, what are the things that we can, what, what are the tools we can give them, the, the tips uh, to help them capture great content? And then on the other side, um, 
uh, when it comes to hiring a food photographer, working with a professional, what are the things they need to be aware of? How do they begin to find one and, and make sure that that uh, relationship is a good collaboration? So those are kind of the two things I want to talk about today. But before we get started, I want to go back and I want to talk a little bit about you, your background, and and tell me, how did you really get started with uh, photo- uh, photography and uh, then food photography? Well, I mean, photography was something that it was interesting for me because I was a literature major and I became friendly with this guy who happened to want to date my cousin and she wanted me to vet him, uh, who was a photo major at SVA. <laughs> and um, so I met him and we ended up hitting it off and became friends. And uh, we ended up becoming best friends and we are best friends to this day, uh, 30 some odd years later. Uh, but what, what was unique about the situation was that I went to Baruch College, which was on 23rd Street, and he went to School of Visual Arts, which was on like 22nd Street. So we were in the same neighborhood every single day during school uh, for four years in college. So I would spend a lot of time at the SVA campus in studios. Uh, in I would just walk into classes and sit in. Um, I would go to different parts of campus. There was a professor there who thought I was a student there because I was around so much. <laughs> so um, I learned a lot about photography in a formal setting without actually paying for the education. So um, that was my initial sort of introduction to photography. And then, of course, being friends with Joe, um, we spent a lot of time photographing one another and like as experiments, you know, like, um, there's actually a photo of me at the Princeton permanent gallery, um, about, uh, what's it called with that? When you draw light in the dark, you know, like a long exposure. Oh, so Joe did a picture of me, which was like a triple exposure. So it was me sitting in this dark background and then a real tight close up of my face, which is sort of, um, see-through and then this light drawing around the entire image. And that's actually at the Princeton permanent gallery. Uh, you would never recognize me cause I'm 18 years old in the picture, but, um, that is the sort of, that was the genesis of me being interested in photography. And then flash forward 10 years later, um, I was di- divorced. I was trying to reevaluate my life and figure out what I wanted to do. And being creative was something that I wanted to project into the future for myself. And I kind of got reacquainted with all my friends from college who were now all working photographers. And that opened doors for me because as an amateur photographer now rubbing elbows with producers and editors and other photographers, you know, you become friendly with people and opportunities seem to find me in that, in that place. So that's how those two things kind of got connected. Um, along with the idea that I had been cooking since I was a little boy. Yeah. Uh, my grandmother was a huge influence on me and had, you know, spent a lot of time in her kitchen learning the food of my culture. And I think that those two things combined to find, um, synergy, in my career uh, fairly early, fairly in the beginning. So, but let, let's go back here because um, you make it sound so easy and I, and, I know, and I know it probably wasn't that easy. So, okay, so at 18, 19, 20, you just start learning photography by wandering into classes and you sneak into the dark room and everyone just thinks you're a, a photographer and, and you're, you, you just give yourself that education. Um, did you then just continue 
shooting after that just just as a hobby like as, as an amateur just just for fun beyond that yeah i mean i did and i think that it took another level when my daughter was born because then at that point i was shooting a nikon ds a, a, not a dslr a nikon slr film camera and i had gotten really enamored with macro photography particularly of this this baby you know and and i i wasn't interested in like infant photography or anything like that but i was taking a lot of pictures of her in settings, a lot of macro stuff, and I was getting very comfortable in that style. So that when I actually started getting photo assignments, uh, and the earlier ones I was getting with the New York Times were more news assignments where I was going out in the field, but, the, but they happened to be more often than not in the food section. So then I was having to sort of translate this style of photography that I was doing at home as an amateur into some kind of a style that made sense for food. And it, I was most comfortable being right on top of the food, filling the frames with macro photography. And that sort of was where I initially found that rhythm as a food photographer is getting very close to things. And I've noticed now as an educator that a lot of burgeoning photographers in food um, happened to feel very comfortable doing the very same thing. So I was yeah. very. it was a very natural way to um, embark on a different style of photography. But shooting uh, Julia as a baby when she was, you know, when I wanted to be that close to her face and fill, her, fill the whole frame up with her face um, sort of prepared me for what that was going to be when I was putting tomatoes instead of children in my pictures yeah 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 it, it's interesting though how well that that translates and and i want to get into that because now we're talking about kind of like the aesthetics of food photography and how it's shifted from the 70s and 80s into the 90s and then food network comes on and the way we think about food film food uh you know look at food changes then into the into the 2000s and all that and and you're uh an interesting um participant there because you get a front row seat um, and it's a little bit of you know what you're talking about now is so much of uh, the direction of food photography your work uh, has been very formative to my work uh, to those listeners who don't know uh, I started off uh, in marketing I really got started as a food photographer and it was because I started taking photography in high school it was always just kind of a like a hobby on the side I liked it because it wasn't a profession because I didn't have to answer to anybody but I just kept doing it all through uh, college and beyond as I moved here to New York and as um, as social media really started taking off, uh, there was a there was a need for uh, restaurants in particular to have you know high quality content uh, produced on a consistent basis, week after week after week. And I just said, well, I can do this. I've been around food now for you know at that point 15, 16 years in a in a professional capacity. I just kind of shifted my relationship to it. Um, but uh, you know, I, you find yourself um, you know gravitating to certain people. Your work. Uh, your creative live class, which which we'll get to, you know, your your kind of work as an educator, um, but that class taught me a whole lot about translating all the things I understood about exposure and and light and, and translating that to tabletop uh, food photography in particular. And uh, without even realizing it, I real you know I didn't know that I had been looking at your work for all these years and you know in the New York Times and it, it was it was very formative to me. And there there are just a couple of people who were um, who are real inspiration, you know, consciously or subconsciously and have really influenced my work. Uh, for those who don't know Andrew's work, um, uh, pick up the New York Times anytime in the last 
a decade or so and and you'll see it um I, i'm gonna link to his uh his instagram page as well uh, where you can see some of his work it's uh um it's it's pretty phenomenal let's go back though uh, again uh so you kept doing it you got good but then all of a sudden you were getting assignments for the new york times talk to me about how that happened because again i know that that doesn't just happen was that just because of your connections because of your friends did, did you get your foot in the door Yes, it started there. Uh, I, I happened to be living on Staten Island back. I had lived in Brooklyn and Manhattan, and then I went back to Staten Island for a little while. And I happened to be there at this point in time where I had done a couple of um, news assignments for the food section where I would go out and shoot the exterior of a restaurant or I would shoot. Um, I was shooting in a grocery store one day, like secretly. I had the camera <laughs> in my yeah, I had the camera in my jacket. I was taking pictures of the meat section, which is a real no, no. They don't want you in the meat section. So, um, and then what happened was the Sam Sifton got word that I knew how to cook and it was like around the holidays. And there was a, there was a, a, an assignment that was sort of about a hangover cure. Um, and you know what congee is, right? That's uh, like a rice soup. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I had to go and make congee and make it look interesting and take a picture of it. This was my first like studio photography assignment for the New York times to make rice porridge look appetizing <laughs> enough, you know, to want to have when you're hung over on new year's day, you know? So I, I, I made it, I photographed it in my mother's kitchen with through window light and it came nice. And um, from there, a, a, a number of things were happening is I was being asked to do styling for other photographers, as well as doing my own photography and styling. And then eventually that just evolved into I was just doing my own thing. Yeah, you're um, kind of like a all in one yeah, kind of production. Yeah, house. Uh, it became a one stop shop. But like it evolved over course of like the first two years of my association with the times between going out to shoot restaurants, going out to, um, you know, going out to do these little assignments here and there, food styling. I did one for the Super Bowl once, which was great. Uh, <laughs> I did all the food styling for a Super Bowl spread. And then I did a, 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 a Thanksgiving, my first Thanksgiving with the times. I actually cooked the turkeys. I did not shoot the pictures. Um, so there was this sort of gradual transition where I was using all of the skills at once and then eventually put them all together and, and did it consistently for them. The first actual food assignment I did, which was like, you know, not a grocery store where I'm hiding in the back trying to take a picture or out in an extension of a restaurant frontage, you know, trying to get their, um, their look was at an ice cream parlor in Staten Island. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And I got to go in there and actually photograph the food, like the fo photograph an ice cream sundae and photograph the, the long counters of candy. And it was a place I had gone to as a kid over and over again. So it was, um, I wrote about it in my book and it was a fun experience. And, you know, the, the, all of these sort of disparate food experiences, had, they all started to kind of gel into um, something that looked cohesive as a career. Uh, and then for the next uh, three or four years, I did that pretty regularly as well as my regular job as a teacher, 
which yeah. is what kind of spurred me to go into education again after I had established myself in photography. Yeah, I mean that's the interesting thing. One of the one of the main reasons why I wanted to to chat with you, why I thought you'd be so valuable to the audience here, uh, is because there are people who are good at what they do, uh, but not many of those people are good at explaining why they're good at what they do, right? Like there's that baseball analogy, right? There's there's a reason that that catchers, um, you know, more than any other position player is a good, you know, makes for a great manager because they touch the ball on every on every pitch. They, they see every, they're literally watching everything uh, and it gives them a really great perspective on the game and, and that translates to, you know, after their uh, their playing career ends where they can, you know, communicate to all of the different players and again, this is, this is why, this is why I'm good. It's such a, such a rare thing. Michael Jordan can't tell you why he's great at what he does. <laughs> I mean, truly, if you ask him, he just, he, he can't articulate it and I, um, I find it's a, a very rare thing and I find myself really hunting it down uh, as much as I can because I'm fascinated with uh, with people who are good at what they do and, and I always want to get better and I want to help other people get better. So uh, I think that's something uh, very unusual and unique that you uh, that you bring to the table in this conversation. Well, do you did you know when you used that analogy that I was a catcher in college? Were you? I was. See? I was a catcher in a college and then I was a baseball manager after that when I coached in high school. So it is definitely, the analogy is there and I think that um, the educational aspect of what I've done, I felt like I hit a wall after, not necessarily the creative cl uh, life class that you're referencing, because that was eight, eight or nine years ago at this point. But I felt like everywhere I went, everybody wanted me to teach photography 101 and uh, food photography 101, to be specific. Yep. And, you know, you reach an end where there is no other place to go with that. And I was sort of, at a crossroads in terms of how much more workshop, um, you know, instruction I wanted to do. And then the, the last few years has taught me that being the catcher again, being the person who's thinking about philosophically how I approach photography rather than the X's and O's of how to, how to swing the bat, how to throw the ball. It's more about, well, what are the ins and outs, the insider part of the way I think as a photographer, the way I think as an artist, and being more of a philosophical coach teacher than a technical coach teacher. So that's been a revelation in moving forward as an educator, because at this point, I'm working and doing this fellowship right now with 15 photographers, where I have them for 15 weeks. And we spend time doing projects. We also do a lot of talking about the intention of photography, the intention of food photography, and what does that all mean in terms of how you are going to approach your work. It's not about exposures. It's not about aperture. And it's not about shutter speed. It's about intention. And everyone's intention is a little bit different, which is why everybody's work feels a little bit different, or at least should. So, so let's talk about that because, you know, especially in food photography, so if somebody, you know, wants to be a food photographer, there are a bunch of different ways they can go, right? There's, uh, you know, there was editorial, so it's shooting for newspapers. Now that's changed wildly just in the last 15 years. I mean, you talk about Sam Sifton and what he did with, uh, you know, the cooking section. I mean, that's like the most extraordinary database of, you know, recipes that are, you know, that are alive. It's a living, breathing uh, thing. I mean, it's a 
it's a cookbook on crack. It's the you know the Wikipedia for for cookbooks, and the way that restaurants get shot that informed the way that restaurants get shot because I remember so when I moved in the city two thousand two two thousand three. Right, a restaurant gets reviewed in the New York Times and they send some photographer to shoot the dining room. Okay, fine. But it hadn't gone digital yet. And now, right, nobody wants to read the review in the newspaper because if you read it online, you get that photo slideshow that, that you know, now, I mean, for the last, I don't know, seven or eight years, I don't read the review until I look at the picture. I look at the pictures, that grounds me, it gives me a sense of uh, place, right? It gives me a sense of, you know, what what it's all about. And then I'll read all about, you know, what they think. But um, but again, it was shooting food in a way. I mean, it's, it's editorial, I guess, but it's shooting it in a, you know, in a different kind of light, certainly than it had ever had ever really been in, in a newspaper. Am I wrong there? No, you're absolutely right. And, and there are two things at play there. There's one is the digital aspect of the web, number one, and then the digital aspect of photography, which came a little later. And those two things combined to redefine and reinvent uh, food photography. Because what um, we were trying to do at that point was move it out of the sort of hot light studio look and trying to capture real food. And in order to do that, you need to move fast. And digital photography allowed us to move fast. Yep. And, you know, it also allowed us to shoot in daylight, um, which because you're moving fast, you can actually get through a photo shoot um, where, you know, formerly under hot lights or strobes in a studio, you'd get through three or four dishes in a day because you got to shoot Polaroids and you have to reset all your lighting and you can't really adjust. Um, but with digital photography, you just fly around the table in daylight, re redirect some light, shoot, 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 and you have all of this content. Um, and th those two elements, you know, change and as digital photography got better. Um, obviously the styles changed, but that, you know, soft depth of field, you know, dreamy look that we were sort of going for in the early 2000s was mostly driven by the fact that if you wanted to shoot in daylight, you, uh, you had to use a wide open aperture Yeah, because the, the camera sensors weren't sensitive enough for it. Yeah. I mean, so, it's, yeah, it's so I, interesting. I, I was shooting for, um, uh, for a chef who's, you know, uh, you know, in his you know third act of his career and he's used to you know that that old you know gourmet magazine art culinaire where you know you know everything you know the it's you know tiny tiny aperture everything's in focus it's just on the table and you know how far it's come since then and uh i've, I've shot for for that chef a handful of times and every time it's like it's like hitting a brick wall every time we come up to it because uh what's fashionable what i do that the thing that i'm i'm that i feel like i'm really good at is not what i think <laughs> what I think he wants and it's been a it's been a constant struggle and um, but it's interesting but it, it's just how much has changed in 20 years in in 25 years or so so I want to go back to this I, this thing you brought up about you know intention like what's your you know what's the intent behind um, and, and I was talking about the, the different places um, that you can work as a food photographer right we're talking about editorial and there's commercial whether that's you know uh, print cookbooks uh, now we get into like um, you know commercials and and then there's this other thing now which is like branded content because everybody's got you know an Instagram account on there and again restaurants need stuff over and over and over every single day there, there's so many different areas so how do you talk to photographers when you're working with them like in this workshop setting um, this fellowship 
How do you talk to them about like what they can do and, and coming up with their own voice and how to adapt that voice for the different mediums? Well, I mean, it started with the very first assignment. Um, I, have, I asked them to do two things. Um, shoot what you know and create both a single image narrative and a multiple image narrative that would be appropriate for something editorial. Um, and basically what I'm trying to get them to understand is that in order to tap into what they want to do going forward and, and telling other people's stories appropriately, you need to be able to tell your own. You need to be able to have a, a sense of why you're doing what you're doing. And with that, it should inform your style. It should inform the way you want to light something. It should inform the, the, the general sense of what your work is all about. So I'm asking them to kind of go deep inside themselves and think about what it is that drives them to want to take pictures of food and figure out what that story is. Tell that story as an artist. I also encourage them to be able to talk about their work and describe what they're doing and describe the layering that they're putting into there. Why is that spoon important to this particular shot? Well, that was my grandmother's spoon and she would cook with it every Sunday. Great. You don't need to tell your audience that, but the fact is you have to be able to explain it if asked. So um, being able to, to uh, tap into yourself as a storyteller opens up doors in all of those arenas. You have to be able to tell a story if you're going to be a commercial photographer because you're going to be asked by your client to tell their story. So understanding how to tell a story starts with telling your own story and then being able to interpret and tell other stories based on creative briefs, a book, uh, a, a, an article, you know, a television commercial. All of those things stem from storytelling. And until you can tell an appropriate story that you're part of and you feel, it's very hard to interpret other people's in, in, a, in an effective way. Yeah, so this is so good. I'm going to use this as a segue to move over into the restaurants because so many of the things that I talk about are that a restaurant has to understand, you know, who they are and who they're for, right? To understand their position in the market, right? That's a basic marketing idea that you have to understand, you know, who else are you competing with, right? Somebody says, hey, I can go out to dinner. What are the other places that, that come top of mind? And then what would make them choose you over one of your competitors, right? And if those uh, if those answers are not obvious, uh, that's that's a red flag for a restaurant that they they have to you know they have to know those things or they have to manufacture those things. So then now you're talking about a different layer, right? Like I think the restaurant has to know you know what they are, what they're serving, what makes them unique, you know, all of that. Uh, but then working with a food photographer, bringing them into it, right? They have to know kind of I don't know they hire you, you're going to bring one lens to the work versus somebody else who's going to, you know, shoot the food through their lens. No pun intended. Um, it's that old thing, you know, I, I worked with a theater director years ago who said, you know, there is no Hamlet. There is only John's Hamlet and Marty's Hamlet and Terry's Hamlet. Like we, we go to see Hamlet through that one actor's lens and it's, it's going to be wildly different or it should be very different same story guy's going to die at the end but you know <laughs> we're seeing we're seeing it through through different lenses and that's what makes it so interesting we see great work through that lens but how do then so how do you jive that i know how i've jived that or i know how i've you know done that successfully or unsuccessfully over the course of my career but how do you talk to 
uh, both the you know the operator side, the the chef, the the restaurateur, and also the food photographer about that about that coming together, that interaction, that collaboration. Well, I mean, it starts with language, right? I'm, I'm, I'm reading a creative brief right now because I'm in the process of editing a 30-second and a 60-second commercial that I just directed and uh, worked on for a hotel. And we're ha- we have to add graphic cards and we're trying to, you know, we, we knew what we were doing in terms of capturing the visuals based on the language that this um, hotel wanted to portray as their branding right and branding is really important and understanding whatever client you're working for has to have some kind of corporate language that they're trying to communicate to their audience and then as the artist in charge of telling that story it's about interpreting that language so it starts there is they're they're speaking a language when they decorate their dining room right they're speaking a language when they when they populate their bar with with liquor they're speaking a language when they you know choose the table settings and and the silverware and the glassware all of these things are communicating something about what they want to say about themselves who they want to compete with who they see as their competitors who they see as their audience to come and to dine at the restaurant so everything that they're trying to communicate you have to feed back to them and make sure that they know you understand the language they're speaking whether it be the branding that they're using in their uh their literature or the type of tables that they have in their dining room all of those things are communicating uh, artistically how they want to portray themselves to the public and as the artist who's going to interpret that it starts with understanding that that communication is is happening and if it's disconnected meaning you 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 want to portray yourself as casual dining but you have linen tablecloths on your table you're clearly ha- giving mixed messages to what your uh constituency is going to understand as your branding and your messaging so um i know i'm talking more like a creative director than i am like a photographer but this is how i see these relationships is trying to guide people toward that consistency of messaging between visuals, what their physical space looks like, how their their literature is written for the restaurant, the menu, all of it, you know, dress code, whatever. Yeah. All of it speaks a language and you have to interpret it for them. Andrew, this is, uh, you are speaking my language. I literally, uh, I have a framework. It's a presentation, a lecture I've given multiple times called the ABCDs of marketing. And it stands for audience, branding, competition, and differentiation. And the turn at the end of the, uh, at the end of the presentation is that ABCD leads to E and E stands for everything. You have to understand that every choice you make communicates something, uh, to a prospective diner and you've got to make sure it's all aligned. It's a, it's a presentation I give to restaurateurs, to chefs, uh, so that they understand understand that not so that they get overwhelmed but that so they're empowered uh, to understand that every choice they make uh, says something you know whether it whether it's smaller you know small or large so I love that you brought this up so that this leads into the first area right if there are two main areas that I want to that I want to really dig into over the course of this interview um, this I think gets to the first right that um, how do chefs restaurateurs you know capture images on their own? Uh, without hiring a food photographer, if they either can't afford one, don't know of one, don't trust one, fill in the reasons. They just want to keep it in-house. They're going to do it themselves. They're going to have their wife, their sister, their their son, their daughter, whoever it is. 
it really begins by understanding what it is you want to communicate, right? I mean, that's it seems to be whether you hire a professional or not, you've got to know who you are, who you're for, and, and what the most salient points are that you want to capture. Would you agree with that? I mean, is that the, that sounds like the first step? Uh, yeah, I think it would be the first step is to develop that shot list based on the things that are important that you're going to try to communicate. Like, what's your signature dish? What's your signature drink? What's the what's the part of your dining room that you want to highlight? Like these are the things that should appear in the imagery, uh, and you know I, I, there there are a, a myriad of ways that I can communicate to a, a chef how they can photograph their food better, but I think intention has to be first. And even if the photography is fifty percent of what it would be if a professional shot it, if the intention is there and it's a hundred percent thought out well that's going to elevate the photography that much more. Yeah. So I'm sure you've gotten this question before, and we are both food photographers. I think our first recommendation would be to hire a professional who can come in and <laughs> really get the shot. But again, assuming people can't, they just, or or they can't yet, I, I guess is what I, I always like to say. How do they, what are the things, the three things, the five things, what, what are the things they can do right away to capture better shots of their of their food of their menu well you have to find the best available light in your space yep. that's one um number two you have to choose your propping in a way that's appropriate for food photography so if you're thinking that instagram is going to be a big part of your business because of the way people come in and photograph your food then you should be providing plates and dishes and silverware that are appropriate for photography, which means they should be neutral, they should be matte, they shouldn't be high shine, uh, and they should be downsized to a degree. So these things will help both you photograph the things yourself, but also provide your diners with the opportunity to take better pictures of your food as well. Um, that's an essential aspect of, of uh, understanding what a food photographer would be looking for in that scenario. Yeah, so um, so let's get yeah. into the nuts and bolts of that before you move on. I'm so yeah, sorry. Yeah, sure. but no. So, you know, matte instead of shiny because the shiny is going to reflect. It's going to, it's just, you want a little patina. It's just going to make the food pop. Explain that. Two things. I mean, uh, it is going to let the food be the star regardless of your lighting. Uh, so if I'm in a studio setting, I have very, a lot of control over the lighting. It's also going to allow me to let the food do the, the the bulwark of you know what it's going to do be the star of the show but a secondary consideration is indoor lighting reflecting off plates and, and silverware um, that's a problem if you're not a professional photographer yep. because if you're not skilled at flagging out highlights and flares that are coming off ceiling lights then every picture you take is going to just look like somebody snapped it with their iphone so if you just make that one simple tweak to eliminate all of that ancillary lighting that comes in and reflects off your plates um, by choosing matte uh, tableware, well, you're already way ahead of the game. Yeah, it's funny. The other piece to this is that I spend a lot of time talking to um, chefs and and operators about, uh, you know, what do we mean by Instagrammable, right? Because it's something you hear all the time. And I say, hey, listen, I don't want food that's Instagrammable just for the sake of it getting photographed, but there's certain dishes that just garner attention, right? Famously, I always give the example of David Burke and his bacon on a clothesline, right? It's just 
he decided to serve bacon as an appetizer. Number one, you're like, what? Number two, we put it on a clothesline. So every time it goes through the dining room, people are like, what is that? It's like the big shellfish towers, right? At Balthazar mm-hmm. or wherever. Shellfish towers sell more shellfish towers because they see them and they say, what is that? Like there is something remarkable will get noticed, will get remembered, will get ordered. And uh, there is some of that that I think has to go into uh, menu design, right? Like the thing that makes a beautiful in a photograph also makes it memorable it makes it worth talking about it makes it worth ordering do you do you think about that as well when you you know when it comes to like the presentation of food on a menu i mean I, the, the the amount of work that i do with restaurants is limited at this point and i i don't yep. necessarily um i'm not i'm not really looking at what what stands out in terms of something that's unique or gimmicky or whatever and i get that that's a thing um and it's a it's an interesting thing to consider if your chef is in the mindset of doing things like that i think if it's not in him naturally or in her naturally um it feels forced it it has to come organically and it has to come creatively in a way like Wiley Dufresne did at WD-50 all those years, right? It just, yep, yep. It just spurred out of him naturally, you know, or when I was up at um, Blue Hill at Stone Barns, you know, and the way that they, ha- they craft every single visual that comes to the table on top of the 15 layers of flavor that happens in all of that food. Yep. So it, I think if it's something that um, emanates naturally from the chef artist then then it's great then it's going to be it's going to feel like it belongs in the space it's going to feel like it belongs on the menu but if you're just trying to create gimmicky stuff it's just going to read wrong and i think it's you know it's a harder thing to capture too because the visual aspect of it has to be part of the creation and part of the creative process and if it's just like, hey, let's do this because it's kind of weird and different. Yeah, that's not going to work. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I totally agree. There, there's just there is something to be said about just again being deliberate. So much of the, the the word I use over and over again is being deliberate with what you're doing. Just don't just do it because that's the way it's always been done. Don't just do it because that's the way you learned it. Don't just do it because that's the way the the guy before you did it. But really stop and think and say, is there is there a better way to present this? Is there a more interesting way? Is there a more delicious? Is there a, whatever it is that just to be deliberate about your choices. And at the end of the day, if you come back uh, and the end, you say, no, I, I really want to do it the way that they did it because that's the way it's best, then so be it. At least you did the thought exercise and you're being deliberate in your choice to leave it the same. It's not just leaving it the same or, or you're leaving it flat or boring or traditional or however you want to describe it. Um, that becomes a that becomes a choice. Well, I, it reminds me of something that I did recently. I was a consultant for a, a major food brand and they asked me. What's your opinion on the cheese pull for pizza shots? And I said, it's played out. It's over. I, I, I mean, you guys can't get off it. I'm like, it doesn't sell pizza. It's like, it doesn't feel natural. It doesn't feel normal. And it just feels like rote repetition because you don't know what else to do. And they were yep. just like, oh, really? I'm like, yes. <laughs> and most people in food photography feel the same way. So, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting, that's the perfect example of it, right? In that an entire industry refuses to move off this one visual because they think that sells pizza. And it's like, it doesn't sell pizza because no one ever has that experience when they take a piece of pizza out of a box. It just never happens like that. It certainly doesn't look that way. Right, right. And, 
Um, and knowing what goes into manufacturing that shot makes it that much worse. Like as a food photographer, as a, as a, as a commercial director, knowing how to make a cheese pull and knowing how manufactured it is makes it a hundred times worse <laughs> than, than just being bored of the cheese pull shot. That's too funny. Okay, so the, so what else can what else can chefs, operators, managers, what else can they do to to make sure they can capture the best uh, possible uh, uh, photographs on their own if they need to? You already gave us a couple of good ones. What, what else? Well, I mean, what we go back to what we talked about earlier about macro photography. Fill your frames with food. Don't worry about propping. Don't worry about table settings. Don't worry about silverware. Fill your fill it up with food. And then on top of that, mix up your angles. Don't just shoot everything from the top. Get down a table level, take a macro shot, back up a little bit, get a mid-range shot of something at a three-quarter angle. You know, take your overhead shot. Uh, don't, don't get married to one particular focal length. Don't get married to one particular um, shooting angle because that ultimately, you know, it just gets boring and repetitive and, and then you lose the, the sight of what's unique. So if something is beautifully architectural on a plate and you decide to shoot it from the top, no one's going to see that it has architecture. So take the time to identify the elements on each plate that's special and focus on that. That yeah. that's a that's a good like good best practices kind of approach. I think I think one of the pieces of advice and and this might have been from your creative life class is just, you know, if you're ever frustrated, if you ever can't find uh, find a way in, you can't capture, you're not getting what you want to get, change your angle, change your light, you know, move your relationship to the light, move the light around the, around the dish and change your angle. And it's uh, helped me whenever I find myself getting frustrated and somebody brings me a dish and I said, I, I don't know, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to right. shoot this. Um, I just, I, you know, I just don't stress out. I just keep that all inside and, and just walk around the table. I change it. I move it. I, you know, change my relationship to it. And it does make all the difference. Well, one other one that I, I consistently teach at this point is, and I've developed language around it, is called, and it's, it, this doesn't go back to the class that you took many years ago, but I talk about photing, photographing food inside of a continuum. And that continuum starts with ingredients and ends with an empty plate. And every spot along that continuum is an op opportunity to shoot. And if you're only focusing well, like tunnel vision, laser vision with a final shot uh, of plated perfect food, you're missing 90% of the process. You're missing 90% of the experience of being part of the food, how it's procured, how it's crafted, how it's eaten, what happens after the fact. Those things are beautiful and part of the that continuum. And if you're not incorporating that into the narrative, well, then we're just focusing on one very narrow element of that, which is this sort of precious, perfect picture that lasts for about three seconds before people tear that food up. Yeah. It's so interesting because I think that's so, uh, that's tied into, I think, certainly, you know, our relationship with food here in America that, you know, we came from a generation that knew very little. I mean, I can talk about my parents all the time, right? Their their relationship food is very different from my relationship to food. And their relationship to food now is different than it was 30 years ago. Uh, yes. the, food, uh, the food we grew up eating uh, was, you know, was wildly different from what we, we make as a family now. And 
Uh, and that's just because we're learning more about food. We're, we're understanding, again, culturally, you know, in this country, where our food comes from, what the what the true cost of it is, what the, you know, and, and that, again, that, that changes, you know, how we think of it, how we engage with it. Um, it's that, I mean, what, 20 years ago, it was farm to table. 10 years ago, it was farm to table. And, and now, okay, that's tired. That's, we don't want to talk about that anymore. But um, but there is this relationship that now Americans are aware of that like, oh, it came from somewhere and, and somebody did something to it uh, and then brought it here and they did something else to it. And now the, it's presented in such a way that that I can consume it. And uh, those people who are around food all the time, um, it's different. We, we take it for granted, you know, just working in restaurants for 20 years. I take it for granted. You, you know, you know, cooking the, the way you do and to the degree you do, there, there are things you just take for granted that, that most people don't. And I think it's an important thing as photographers, as operators to be able to like, you know, peek behind the curtain, show, you know, show the process, show, you know, what went into it. So it's a key element to, to the way I teach food photography at this point is to tell people to be a participant in the food and, and document the participation in the food rather than being an observer of the food. Because I think ultimately the more the photographer participates with the food, um, the deeper they draw the audience into the imagery. So that it's not just about this is a static object that I'm going to admire, it's actually some kind of living continuum of participation in both the craft, the buying of, the crafting of, the consuming of the food. So I, I, I want to bring all of that to the storytelling, not just this static image that, like I said, lasts for a fraction of a second before it changes. I think it's so interesting. I've never heard it uh, described in that way, this idea of, you know, uh, thinking about your food um, or, or the experience of eating the food or, or dining at a restaurant as a continuum. But I think it's so good. And I think it's something that we're going to have to, you know, really think about and articulate over the next several years, especially as we come out of the pandemic, as we have to give people a reason to come out, right? Like, like, why should I come out? Yes, people want to go back out to restaurants, but like, why should they come here as opposed to somewhere else? And, and it goes beyond just uh, food photography. I mean, obviously, that's the way you think about it. But, but I think about it in terms of, uh, as you're saying this, um, menu design and, and how we describe our menu, how we talk about our menu, um, how we lay out the dining room. Why is the dining room uh, present it in this way? Why is the menu presented in this way? You know, how do we keep in touch with our people beforehand? What do we tell them about the experience they're about to have? Um, either, you know, via email or on the website or, you know, through imagery, you know, on social media or wherever. And 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 how do we then, you know, continue that conversation, continue the, uh, the hospitality uh, beyond uh, when the typical dining experience ends? I think, um, I, I love this idea of this, you know, thinking, uh, thinking of it in terms of a continuum. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there's, you know, when you think about trending topics in food and you spoke about farm to table, but right now, I mean, I'm deeply engaged with a lot of different avenues of food photography where I have to consider what trends are. And everywhere I turn, it's about sustainability, sustainability, sustainability. And it's about plant-based food, plant-based food. It's, it's this, all this stuff having to circle around the ecology is more and more what our diners and our viewers of food photography are concerned with. Understanding where their food comes from, understanding how it's sourced, how it's sustained, how it's farmed, 
All of these things matter to people. So the more that our restaurants uh, are communicating and our publications are communicating the kinds of things that are important to the people who are purchasing the food or purchasing the magazine or the newspaper, um, the, the better the communication is between the artists, the creators, and the consumers. So um, I think it's in inordinately important to understand what's going on in the world and how that gets translated through the way we eat and the way we consume and the way we uh, participate with food. Yeah, I mean, food is like fashion. It really does keep time, marks time in a way that, that very little else in the world does. And and again, it has to do with our, our shifting relationship to food. And, and maybe that's just my view as an American, but I, I can't help but uh, but think that 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 you can you can track the last you know thirty years and 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 how we've gone politically and and otherwise uh, by what's happened with with food culture in America. Yes, absolutely. I, I did an experiment with um, a group of students. Got to be fifteen years ago now. I was teaching like a um, like a current events class, and I told people. Is it possible, and actually this is something that got written about in the Times many years later, and I, I called Frank Bruni out on it because it was, he, he was the one who wrote it. Um, but it was about, do you eat like a Republican or do you eat like a Democrat? And it, this was during the Bush administration, right? And um, I asked my class that. I said, what's it mean to eat like a Republican? What does it mean to eat like a Democrat? And it was very interesting that the perceptions that people have of what it meant that you know, you'd be hard pressed to find a vegan Republican or something like that. Now, of course, right. I think that's all gross generalization, but it is in line with the ideas that the more we discuss the world politics, you know, and the way we are interacting with those things and how that gets translated into the way we eat is very, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to that again, being deliberate with the choices that we make. Um, I want to switch gears uh, one more time and talk about the, the the main subject here, which is, uh, you know, restaurateur, a chef, they want to hire a food photographer. Maybe they've never done it before or they've had mixed experiences with it. Let's talk about how, how that relationship works at its best, um, how to find a great food photographer, how to collaborate how does that process start and and help me put the audience at ease if they've never done it that that there's value to doing this and that they're going to capture the food better than um, than a non-professional you know nine times out of ten well once you've made the decision that you need a professional photographer I think that's where it starts it's like you can't go into it half-heartedly because you just your heart's not going to be in it and, and you're going to be resentful of the process you're going to be resistant to the process and I think that's one of the major hurdles that I've encountered in dealing with restaurant professionals who have not yet completely bought into the idea that they need a professional photographer and then it becomes this sort of passive-aggressive sort of wrestling match to get what we need to get. And I think the first thing to do is decide that this is what you need. And then you have to have complete buy-in that you are now putting your, your, your vision in the hands of another artist. And I think that is the, the largest hurdle to cross. And then once we've gotten there and we acknowledge that you as the chef have a vision, an artistic vision that I, as an artist, I'm going to interpret and do my best to serve you the way you need to be served. And once that relationship starts to form, 
and those ideas of flowing back and forth and I'm respecting the fact that the chef is creating this food and he's respecting the fact that I know the best way to uh, display it. Um, once we get to that arrangement, we're in a good place. Secondly, don't choose your photographer based on budget. Because if you just go to the lowest common denominator, you're, you're already eliminating many, many great choices for people who may very well want to work with you and will work a budget for you. Don't be afraid to ask. Quite often the answer will be no, and you go for the top of the mark. But the reality is my biggest complaint, quite honestly, throughout my career has been people refuse to ask me if I would work for this for fear that I would say no. And it's sort of like I, there's been a million situations where I should have said no and I didn't because I thought it was an interesting project or I, I really liked the food. And it was something that yeah. I wanted to do. So I think you should always shoot for the photographer you want. Do your research. Look at the work. Don't ask rates until you're certain on who you like. And then once you've gotten to that point where you have four or five photographers you'd like to work with, then start talking about your budget. And then figure out whether that photographer at the top of your list would like to work with you for whatever budget you have. Because I know there, has been, there have been many times where... I wish someone have at, would have asked me if I wanted to shoot food at this place or, you know, donuts at this place or whatever, because yeah. I just thought it would be something interesting to do. or I thought it would be great for my portfolio or I just really like that place. I want to support them. You know, yep. um, money shouldn't always be the primary consideration for both the chef and the and the photographer. You just got to find a way to meet in the middle between I know I want to work with this person and sometimes that's mutual. So that's another yep. key factor. And then lastly, of course, is consistent communication, communicating what your needs are, communicating what your expectations are. And then as the photographer, it's your job to interpret those needs and manage the expectations. And once you've created a good dialogue between two working artists, then you will find that you will get a much better result in the end. So that's great. I, I want to work backwards here in this because we'll get to the budget and the kind of the nuts and bolts of like building out a shoot and executing a shoot and all that. But before that, you talked about communication. Like, 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 what are the what's the best way that a chef, restaurateur can go about those early things? Right, they've gone through and they've done their research and they've found four or five photographers they love. And they've got their top and they reach out to the top and they say, hey, I want to capture food. Let's just say, uh, you know, I want to do a schedule a food shoot. I need stuff for the website. I need stuff for social media. I need stuff maybe for some in-house, you know, print some postcards and check presenters and things like that. And, you know, I'd like to capture food and use it in these ways. How does the creative conversation happen or what's the most productive way um, to start that conversation from the photographer side, what what do you need from the restaurateur? What, what kind of questions or how does that conversation begin uh, in, in a really productive way? Uh, with a shot list, uh, first and foremost, come at me with a shot list. Uh, tell me what your priorities are. Tell me what is deal breakers, and then go down the list because we're not going to shoot everything in your restaurant. It's just not going to work that way. And then, of course, from a creative perspective, we want to start to group and look at things that are 
a little too similar to shoot so that one we can eliminate one and shoot another um, we also want balance in the menu we want to think about what's good in our entrees what's good in our appetizers how many drinks do we want to photograph which desserts do we want to highlight um, so i think that in terms of uh, knowing what the priorities are of the the restaurant or the chef um, is a clear help to the photographer to know what your priorities are and that way when we get to the budget talk we know okay you say you want to shoot 50 i don't think you have the budget to shoot 50 but i know what your top 20 are and i know i can probably do your top 20 for your budget and that's how that evolves so that we get the best of the best and i think also the the, the concept of what a shot list looks like um, and, and this has come in very handy in all the years I've done cookbooks because every cookbook author comes at you with, I want to photograph a hundred recipes. <laughs> and I'm like, you just don't have the budget to shoot a hundred recipes. You don't even have the food budget to shoot a hundred recipes. Yeah. So let's talk about what your priorities are. So I do think that there's a lot of parallel between shooting a cookbook and shooting for a restaurant because a menu is very much like a cookbook. There are things that are you're going to be your stars and there are other things that you're going to get that are going to get left by the wayside because creatively budgetarily all of those things they have to be some things need to be priority over others so that's a really great first step so then how does a shot list look um or how do you like a shot list is it you know in in terms of like a restaurant saying okay these are the 20 dishes we'd like to shoot let's just say we'll use your example and is it to say these are the 20 dishes and we're going to get a bunch of different angles or do we want to start thinking of like we're going to do this we want to get a top-down shot here or we this we want to get a close-up really focusing in on what's helpful in that relationship i think the detail and specificity is helpful but i think also the willingness to understand that looking at it through the lens of a, of a photographer rather than as a, a chef or a diner is a great distinction to make so that as long as you know you know that there's going to be some dialogue around those choices but i like the specificity because i think it shows that there's a uh, a willingness to think visually rather than thinking in terms of what this stuff tastes like um so that's an important aspect so the more specificity but with the caveat that we need to basically negotiate some of that stuff yeah so there's something that you do. Uh, we keep talking about this Creative Live. If people don't know what Creative Live is, it's a, it's a company that was started by Chase Jarvis. Uh, it's an online education hub, and you'll find all kinds of classes, everything from uh, food photography classes. Uh, Andrew has this famous one uh, to lighting classes and, and Photoshop and, and, and productivity workshops. And I mean, literally everything, you know. Uh, the arts are kind of the foundation of it, um, but there are writing classes. Like I said, there are productivity classes. There are you know money management classes. It's a really uh, it's a really incredible resource, and you uh, you can either go and uh, have a monthly subscription and you get access to everything, or you uh, pay per class and and you get lifetime access for those. Uh, Andrew did one of these. He said what eight or nine years ago, and and I ended up taking this class, and it was uh, very helpful for me in my transition from uh, hobbyist photographer to really professional photographer and. Uh, didn't give me all the tools I needed, but it gave me all the things I needed to think about in terms of food photography. In that class, um, you talk a little bit about uh, the business of it and, you know, kind of what we're talking about here. Uh, and you go through these 10 questions, right? Like these are the questions 
you should uh, be asking a potential employer. And I think there's value to the food photographers hearing that, but I think there's also value um, in in making sure that the um, the restaurateur understands what the food photographer is thinking about. And, and can, can we go through those and, and what those questions are that, you know, what restaurateurs should be prepared to, to think about and discuss? You shoot, the, you shoot the question and I'll explain it. <laughs> so, which, which one you want to start with? <laughs> so, so what were the, there are like, there are a whole series of questions and I can't remember them right now off the top of my head, but it was like, well, I mean, what's the yeah, budget? I mean, basically the questions all revolve around the idea of how is this photo shoot going to get executed? So it's about yep. how many shots do you need? How many, um, how, uh, how many shots do you need? How many, um, how are you going to use those photos? So we talked about those two things already. That's a shot list and basically our usage. Like I'm going to use it on the web. I want to use it on a menu. I want to put it on a billboard, whatever. Those two key ones. Um, because the idea is uh, if you're going to use them in one place, that's one price. If you're going to use them in another place, right? If you're going to use them on social media and your website, that's one thing. But if you're going to run a you know national ad for 10 weeks, that's Absolutely. a different price. Yes. Usage fees will vary based on, on how you're going to employ the photography in, in public, uh, print versus web versus, you know, uh, using in social, all of those things have different prices attached to them. And it all depends on the photographer, the region you're in and a bunch of other things. But then other questions should revolve around the space you're going to shoot in uh, because in a restaurant environment is that a working restaurant where am i going to shoot if there's diners and people walking all around and how is that going to in, in, impact both my work and yours so knowing the space uh, knowing who's going to be cooking the food who's going to be plating the food who's going to be responsible for propping this thing out whether it's a studio shoot or in a restaurant so all of those things are part of the 10 questions, but also asking things like file formats and, and crop sizes, because those things are important as well, because how are we going to use these images? If you don't have a specific um, request for crop size, well, you're going to get, you know, four by six, six by four, because that's what comes out of the camera. Uh, how you want your files delivered, you know, the, like back in the day when I wrote those 10 questions, uh, some clients still wanted a hard drive. Some clients wanted you to deliver all the raw files on set. You know, some people were good with Dropbox or, you know, a flash drive or whatever. But, you know, all of those questions, and, you know, when you get to that point where it's like, well, do you want JPEGs or TIFFs? If you didn't ask the question and you deliver the wrong ones, then all of a sudden you're going back and reprocessing every photo you just took. So the, yeah. those are uh, the, at the core of those questions is, about personnel, space, files, you know, shot lists, usage, all of those things are, are, you know, central to having a good relationship with a client and a photographer, because then we are getting everything out on the table and there will be no surprises. Yeah. And I think this is a good thing for, uh, for restaurateurs to be thinking about. And I also, I, the reason why I wanted to go through this with Andrew here on the show is that don't be surprised or overwhelmed if a food photographer comes at you with these questions or a barrage of questions. Don't be overwhelmed like, oh, because I've had this happen. I've, I've watched it and say they just feel in over their head. They feel overwhelmed. and They just thought, oh, I, I don't know what they mean by file format. So so I, I, I bet you I guess I'm just not ready for a food photographer. Like, no, no, no. 
a food photographer is going to capture your food, you know, as as beautifully as you deserve, um, and show it off. Nothing's going to, you know, entice a diner in uh, more than a really great shot of food that looks delicious. Um, that that's just true. A, a, a beautiful website with beautiful photography is going to attract more diners than a crappy website with substandard photography. So. I, I wanted to go through this because it, this is something to think about, right? Like mm -hmm. you need one file format if it's gonna if it's gonna go in a magazine you're producing in your place, which I've done that for uh, for restaurants I've worked at. Um, it's gonna need another file format if it's just gonna go on the uh, on the website. So I think there's there's value in in understanding this. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, and I think that there's also the the added factor of. When you ask a lot of questions, I get that people can feel intimidated by that and not and feel like they're out of their depth. But I try to use simple stories to illustrate the 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 dilemma. All right. So I had a big job with a big company shooting a cookbook. We were gonna do somewhere north of 40 recipes. We negotiate the contract. There's a third party involved because it involved a, a publisher a television show and me, right? So we had these three different entities and everybody had to sign off on this budget. So I'm basically dealing with the television show and then they're dealing with the publishing house. Um, we get to the final stages of all this and nobody knows who's supposed to pay for the food. We have a major company, a television show and me and there's no line item for food because they just thought it was going to show up. That's right. <laughs> because the thing was, I, I, because I wasn't dealing directly with the client that had this intermediary in between who did not know the, to ask those questions, it wasn't part of my budget. So I never calculated for food costs because it wasn't part of my budget. But then yeah. we get to the final stages and it's sort of like we have a $30,000 bill for food. Who's paying this bill? I'm like, well, yeah. it certainly is not me. Uh, you, know, <laughs> and, and you realize that unless you ask all those questions, even as rudimentary as who's paying for the food, um, that becomes that could become a really big problem on a on a on a big job. So that was one of the reasons I came up with the ten questions because I thought, and the ten questions should at this point maybe not so much be retired but be refined. Because, you know, when I wrote them, it was the, the industry was quite different than it is now. There's still quite a lot of overlap with a lot of those questions. But like the question of usage, um, the likelihood. Which is, a, which is a big deal now, which is a big problem right yeah. now because people just uh, because people we trade images like they're like they're baseball cards, like they're totally free. It doesn't matter. And. Uh, again, the, the nature of the internet, it just gets copied and copied and puts in other places. And, you know, you're, you're credited here, you're not credited there. And it's, it's a big, it's a big issue. Yeah, it is a big issue. And the idea is that you need to also the fact that the content machine never stops grinding. And there's always needs for more and more and more content. And those what that means is that the price of creating content is going down and down and down and it's getting harder and harder to make a living as a photographer. So unless you're consistently communicating that to your clients and making them understand what photography should be worth or is worth, 
um, we're going to have this struggle for photographers to exist the way chefs and restaurants are having a hard time existing. But together, I think there's a mutual understanding that we kind of need each other. Yeah. Uh, bottom line is, I think uh, we eat with our eyes uh, first and foremost these days. Unfortunately, that just is that just is what it is. Um, and that's our uh, our first impression and often our last impression before we um, before we click reserve before we we purchase something. And when you're when you're dealing with something that important, right, whether people click or not, whether they reserve or not, whether they buy or not, um, there's value in getting the best possible image you can uh, to entice people because it's the difference between a sale and uh, and no sale, a sale and somebody moving on to the to the next item. Now the big thing is um, is CPG, right? Mm -hmm. Consumer packaged goods and shooting them in new and innovative, interesting ways, not just with the white background. Or if you're doing it with the white background, how are you? How are you presenting that? And especially uh, post pandemic, all these restaurants, you know, came up with their own jams, jellies, you know, chocolates, you know, whatever it is, yep. like shooting that in innovative ways. And it makes a really big difference whether you whether you sell them or not. Yeah, there's no question that there has to be a, you know, an understanding that you need photography. It's everywhere, everywhere you look, everywhere you turn, you turn on the TV, you turn on your computer, you drive down the street. You open the newspaper, you look at a magazine, it's absolutely everywhere. And it's you're competing for a lot of eyes. So you have to up the game if you want to get eyes on your particular product. Absolutely. All right. Uh, I, I'm so aware of your time and really grateful for your time. I want to ask you one more question because I know you've done a lot more of this over the last several years. Um, talk to me about video and and kind of that play, you know, the video's place um in this world of you know food promotion and all of that, and um, where do you think it's going? How important is it? Is it as important as photography? Um, talk to me a little bit about your your take on it. I mean, I think it's absolutely essential to understand its role right now. I mean, you look at something like TikTok, and you look at how um, how much video is playing a role in food on TikTok. It's, it's really big business. It's enormous. I had a conversation with a young woman today who started a cupcake design uh, feed, and she has 2 million followers in six months. <laughs> and it's like, wow, you're, you've basically created an industry for yourself. You like, you will, if you maintain this, you'll have a job the rest of your life because audience is what matters, right? Yeah. And video is a way to bring people into audience. So not necessarily shooting professional video because I do think that, you know, when you start to venture into things like beyond the DSLR or even with a DSLR, you're still talking about relatively sophisticated, you know, skill set. But the way people shoot video and edit video just on their phones and their iPads is remarkable. Yeah. And it just goes to show you the power of it. So even now, like this latest job that I'm editing right now also had a large component of still photography. So the job was originally a still photography job and I upsold it to include video. And then the video is being cut right now that is including all these different factions of what we, we, we got from this job, which is a graphics package, a music package, stills and, mo and moving pictures 
to put together a 30 second commercial and a 60 second commercial for this hotel. So um, being able to toggle between the two visual, two visual arts um, as a photographer is essential. I taught another class at Creative Live called the transition from photo to film. So, uh, you know, if you are interested in making a living with a camera, whether that be the one in your pocket or the one hanging around your neck, um, it is wise to understand what those tools do. And those tools all do photo stills and video simultaneously. So I would suggest you get engaged with video. Yeah, and at the end of the day, it all goes back to telling the story, right? Like you've got mm -hmm. a you've got an experience to sell, right? A, a restaurant is an experience. You're selling, a, you know, yeah, food, but but more than that, um, it, it goes beyond that. And there there are a bunch of different ways to uh, to communicate that. And video is another powerful way to uh, to communicate that. Um, Andrew, I really appreciate all of your time. Um, where else can people go to learn about you, what you're, uh, what you're up to? So um, you can find me on Instagram. Uh, it's just my name, at Andrew Scrivani. Um, I'm there a lot. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a primary way I communicate with my audience. But I'm also um, part of the, what they're calling the founding faculty at a company called Speakeasy, which is uh, where I'm holding my uh, photography fellowship. Currently, and I'll be doing another one later in the year. So if you're interested in something like that, there will be other opportunities for both standalone classes and working with me independently uh, in small groups as a mentor. Uh, I'm also in the process of developing some educational content around stock photography for Adobe. Uh, so those are the two main focuses of my educational stuff right now. Um, I, I've been producing some classes for Creative Live, but I have not been an on-camera talent for them in about a year. So uh, I'm thinking about how I can make that work uh, as well. But then, you you know, my work is always on my website and um, I'm always out there just, you know, interacting and in, engaging with uh, restaurants and chefs and and other photographers. I, I, I really enjoy the community. And we didn't even talk about it, but please talk to me about the book. <laughs> yes, I wrote a book uh, back in 2019 called That Photo Makes Me Hungry. Uh, it is sort of anecdotal lessons that I pulled from all the different educational things that I've done um, through the years about food photography. So it's a little bit of a memoir. It's a little bit of an instructional manual, and it's a little bit of a self-help book. So if you're interested in food photography or just looking at pretty pictures, you can check it out. Awesome. We will include all of those links in the show notes, so no need to worry. They will be there. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Any final uh, words of wisdom before we uh, sign off? Well, I just I will encourage you all to remember about your intentions. Know what you want to shoot, know how you want to shoot it, and be able to communicate that both visually and verbally, and you will make beautiful pictures. Perfect way to end. Andrew, thank you so much. Anytime. Once again, I want to thank Andrew for taking time out of his busy day to sit and chat with all of us. I hope you got a lot of value from this conversation. Uh, quick word before uh, before I let you guys go, uh, I have written an ebook. It is uh, available absolutely free. Uh, it's how to increase revenues by ten percent overnight. It's a twelve page ebook. Uh, it shares ten different tips for ways you can increase revenue literally overnight. Again, it's available totally free. Visit Restaurant Strategy podcast.com slash revenue to go ahead and get your ebook. That link is in the show notes. Again, all of Andrew's links are also in the show notes. Really appreciate you guys being here until next week. Stay creative and I'll see you then.
Restaurant Strategy is made possible by the generous support of our sponsors as well as our Patreon supporters. A special shout out to all of our gold and platinum members, Ty Hames, Bob and Kate Carpenter, Scott Middleton, Chuck and Denise Close, Stephen and Ann Fagan, Mario D'Amatos, and Christopher Tana. If you want to become a supporter, please go visit patreon.com slash restaurant strategy. Again, the link is in the show notes.